This is a 3CR community radio podcast. In Psychedelia is broadcast every Sunday from 2pm. For more info on anything you hear in the show, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page. Prohibition is self-defeating. It's a multiplier for the industry. It increases the price but doesn't decrease demand. The drug war began with the process of colonisation. The current measures are based on fear. Good afternoon and welcome to In Psychedelia on 3CR. Thank you very much to Freedom of Species back next week from 1pm. If you want to hear more from Freedom of Species or any of the programs that you hear on 3CR, head to the website 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the program page. Uh, You can check out the whole uh, grid of shows that are available on 3CR and find something that might suit your interests. Uh, Just look at the program guide at 3CR. also, don't forget to subscribe to uh, their podcast. Subscribe to our podcast, which, again, I've got to keep updated. Ah, so many things to do during these times um, and many more uh, podcasts on 3CR. Uh, in Psychedelia is a program dedicated to talking all things drugs. We cover everything from policy to science to um, the various cultures and subcultures and uh, things that happen Um that aren't necessarily focused on drugs but might involve drug issues. Uh, We also put some of our interviews and segments uh, onto our YouTube channel, which you can find by going to our website or going to 3CR. Um, Both uh, have a link. Um, And we're also simulcasting this part of the show, this introduction and uh, news uh, wrap uh, on the show, so uh, on YouTube, on 3CR. Hi to everyone on 3CR, hi to everyone on YouTube, and hello to everybody listening back uh, via podcast. Uh, my name is Nick, and uh, sitting with me today is uh, Ash. Ash, how are you going? Yeah, good, good. Good to be back on the show. I've uh, had a couple of weeks where I um, haven't quite managed to link up a time for kind of pre-recording and doing all the gadgety stuff. So, um, yeah, it's kind of good to be back. I think lockdown 2.0 has shaken all of Melbourne and also sitting uh, above me in the window, but that's irrelevant to you if you're listening, uh, Jack Ravel. Jack, how are you going? Good, Nick. How, how's, uh, how's your week been? Uh, it, well, I've had a, a week off work, but it hasn't been any different to uh, any other um, time at the moment. Um, and, in fact, I've been out walking less. I wanted to get out walking more. It's been a cold, uh, very cold week in Melbourne, um, but also just there's been tales of um, people being pulled over and fined. Uh, we've got a five kilometre radius at the moment where you're allowed to go for exercise for one hour, um, and that's that's the deal. But apparently, some people were being fined uh, because they drove to their exercise spot and some police were under the impression that you're only allowed to walk to the place that you're exercising. So a lot of confusion around rules. Apparently, Victoria Police are going to be reviewing all of those, but it's kind of like once, you, once you're in that system and then you have to go through a review, it's, yeah, it's, like, it's better to avoid that in the first place, I think. But, yeah, Just that's... Just the listeners out there, if you are confused about that rule, it has now been changed. You can drive to your local park. Hooray! I have a little bit more confidence and I might go for a walk this afternoon. (laughs) Um, uh, To start off the show um, this afternoon, Drugs Wrap is a weekly newsletter uh, covering drug issues across Australia and produced by Jack. Uh, You can subscribe at uh, drugswrap.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K, dot com. (laughs) That's drugswrap.substack.com. Hey, Jack, 
what is in drug news this week? Oh, hang on. <laughs> First story. Police probe possible organised crime consortium behind alleged cocaine haul. This is in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, published on August 19th. Yeah, so last week um, the police uh, seized a fishing boat off of Newcastle and they found a record-breaking 1.8 tonnes of cocaine, which was just sitting on the boat. Um, The Australian Border Force watched a Chinese flag vessel coming in from a direction that they weren't expecting. They started following it. Um, The ship started zigzagging, maybe looking like it was trying to get away. Uh, They followed it for a while, and they actually watched it then transfer this large quantity of narcotics over to an Australian ship. Uh, which they then intercepted. And that haul, I've just done a few calculations on that and estimated that it's probably got a street value of about a billion dollars. So it's one of the largest cocaine seizures ever in Australian history. And what they're looking at now is that this is probably not the work of just a single organized crime gang. It's probably actually a whole bunch of crime gangs working together who have... Um, I don't know, chipped in and just bought a huge shipment, which they think has come directly from South America. Right, and that's that's um that's a story that's been evolving over the past few weeks. So I suppose we'll uh, hear more uh, as it comes. But um, uh, crossing now to SBS News, why cultural culturally specific support for Indigenous families is crucial in reducing incarceration rates. Yeah, so this is a a good story. It's from the ACT. Um, The government there have announced last week that they would give uh, $1.5 million in extra funding uh, to an Indigenous program that basically helps families um, with a history of incarceration connect to Indigenous support networks. Um, And they've got a story in there about a young guy who um, found himself, you know, quite in a a bad situation due to drugs and alcohol, um, connected through that program, and he was able to actually direct a lot of his um, efforts and um, out, you know, output into into some musical stuff, which is really, really good. So that program has been given a whole load of extra funding, and it's been proven to to be really effective there. So um, that's a that's a good message coming out of the ACT that you know having these um, actually culturally relevant programs are, are going to have a big impact, big help. And staying in the ACT, where uh, progressive policy seems to be the name of the game this week, uh, the Canberra pill testing site moves close as ACT uh, government agrees to investigation. This is in the Canberra Times, published on uh, August twenty first on fr- uh, Friday. Yes, so. Thursday night, Thursday evening, um, the ACT government, uh, the Legislative Assembly there, they agreed to explore the idea of having a pill testing clinic in the in the centre. Um, and that's obviously following up the work of the pill testing in Canberra. Um, and the, the good results they've had from festival protesting over there um and so this was actually an amendment from the greens uh in canberra um to add this extra motion harm minimization and basically somebody there have agreed um so this we could be potentially seeing this by um by the summer 
Wow, and I suppose um, in terms of festivals uh, this summer, it's going to be interesting whether or not there are going to be any festivals. But that yeah, this is a um, uh, a good. Uh, I mean, it's sort of like the the Dutch model where uh, people can take in their pills for testing, uh, no matter if they're going to a festival or an event or anything like that. So it sort of uh, broadens the, um, the 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 reach and the ability for people that aren't necessarily taking their drugs at a festival, but still want to have that same kind of level of protection. Uh, lighting up in lockdown cannabis use soars during pandemic yeah, uh, this so this is, is in, a oh sorry in uh, crikey uh which was published on august 19th yes yeah, so the so reporting crikey um they're basically showing this report that says that self-reported uh usage of cannabis has gone up exponentially um and also the people who are being granted uh, medical cannabis access has also increased dramatically um over lockdown so basically becoming you know australians drug of choice uh during during this time period uh a reminder that if you want to receive updates from drugs wrap you can also follow along on twitter uh the uh handle is at drugs wrap uh and also if you want to sign up uh for the uh, newsletter uh you can do that at drugswrap.substack.com uh ecs botanics unveils plan for major cannabis uh growing uh project uh this is um part of the 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 you know the, the continued commercialization and uh um legalization or at least uh um relaxation of some rules around uh cannabis the cannabis industry in australia oh and sorry yeah. it's in business business news australia uh published on the 13th of august yeah, these guys actually follow um, a lot of cannabis news and cannabis medical cannabis updates and things. Um, particularly, it's sort of from an investment perspective because that's really big at the minute. You know, people trying to invest in in these little cannabis companies, hoping that some of them are going to get huge and they're going to make some big returns on that. And obviously, the government are um, encouraging that by putting a lot of money into it. And yeah, this is another cannabis medical cannabis company that have put out these plans saying that they're going to create yet again one of the big operations in in australia which almost every week seems to be happening you know a new record project is being built so yeah again we're seeing that uh in the bbc philippines death penalty a fight to stop the return of capital punishment from the 16th of august yeah so this is um it's a pretty big story. It's been in the news for a long time. Uh, Duterte, the, the president of the Philippines, is notorious for his um, crackdown on drug dealing, but also drug usage. Um, and he has ordered police to shoot to kill in any sort of drug-related incidents there. Um, he's also actually encouraged the population of the Philippines to kill um, drug dealers themselves, um, which is, you know, pretty, pretty hectic, pretty harsh um, instruction there. And it's looking like he's going to reimpose the, the death penalty. And the death penalty has not been in usage in the Philippines since 2006, um, you know, campaigners are trying to push back against this, but it's looking pretty likely that he's going to reinstate that. So, you know, it's a big step in this kind of wrong direction of just, you know, execution and violence. And um, yeah, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, the Washington Post, uh, Canada's other health crisis as overdose surges, officials call on government to decriminalise illicit drugs. 
Yeah, so this is sort of just following up the, the Canadian movement at, at the moment. I mean, the last few weeks, there's been big calls from people in top government and top health positions um, to decriminalize drugs. And this is basically just an overview of, of what's been happening. There's a growing chorus um, of, of top officials, you know, um, people like the Premier of British Columbia, chiefs of police, you know, senior health officials, they're all calling on uh, Trudeau to decriminalize the possession of drugs for personal use. And that's because because there's just been a huge um, incre- increase in, in people overdosing over there, and they're seeing that as a really effective way to, to curb that. From marijuanamoment.net, ACLU, NAACP, and other groups push Congress to pass marijuana legalisation bill by next month, uh, published on the, August the 14th. Yeah, so this is a massive, um, massive conglomeration of civil civil rights group and NGOs who have come together. They've signed this letter to urge Congress uh, to support a vote on this new act, which is called the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, um, by the end of next month. So that's something that's been kind of hanging around in Congress for a little while. And all of these civil rights groups have come together and said this is really something that would have a big effect if, if they could uh, push that through. Um, and essentially, the act would look to um, deschedule cannabis as a you know, criminal substance. Um, they would also expunge the records of anyone with, with marijuana convictions, and they would impose uh, a federal 5% tax on sales, um, which they then want to reinvest into communities that have been the most impacted by the drug war. Uh, CNN.com, Asia's prisons are filling up with women, many are victims of the war on drugs. Yeah, so this is a really good um, investigative piece on kind of an under underserved, underlooked um, aspect of Asia's um, pretty intense drug wars, and it's really looking at the impact that these had on on women. And so, a lot of jails in places like Thailand and, and the Philippines are actually filled with um, women who are either you know they've been trafficked or they've been they've been tricked into trafficking uh drugs um there was a story in there about a woman who was tricked into bringing a suitcase full of i think methamphetamine into hong kong um and yeah they have the highest proportion of um female prisoners um in southeast asia and so it's, it's kind of an interesting look at, at that angle of it and finally to medium.com uh where this is a piece from you jack uh, and i'm not even going to try and pronounce that i'll give that to you <laughs> Um, Yeah, so this is a group called Silera Bioscience, um, who I spoke with uh, last week. I spoke with the two founders there, a guy called Dr. Chris Witowski and a woman called Dr. Jackie Sam. And they founded this this new research group um, over in Florida. Um, They're these two young guys, young chemists, and they've come up through um, medical cannabis. They've worked with AltMed for a number of years. And um, this guy, Chris, he's actually helped AltMed set up a lot of... um, uh, all med practices in various states and going from, you know, the production of cannabis right through to the development of products and things like that. And he's basically, you know, jumped ship and created his own company, which is looking at um, psilocybin and psilocin and DMT. And they're looking at non sort of hallucinogenic ways in which those drugs could be useful to people with conditions like Alzheimer's or cognitive um, degenerative disorders, um, trying to work on aspects of those drugs that potentially haven't really been looked at so far. Um, so just, you know, kind of an interesting article there if you're interested in the sort of part of science stuff. Um, yeah, good chat with them and uh, it was really fun to do.
Uh, the newsletter is Drugs Wrap. Uh, you can subscribe to that at drugswrap.substack.com. Jack, thank you very much. Thanks very much, guys. Speak to you next week. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence. But you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now. An important message from the Victorian Government about coronavirus. To manage coronavirus and save lives, immediate action is required. This means if you can stay home, you must stay home. Yes, it's a major disruption to your lives, but this disruption today will save the lives of many Victorians tomorrow. If you think you may have coronavirus, call the government's hotline on 1800 675 398 or visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Victorian Government, managing this together. A 3CR supporter. It's in Psychedelia on 3CR and we've just been covering the news with Jack. Um, but Ash, it's been a few weeks. Um, any comments on, uh, on on what's been going on in the news? Yeah, well, I mean, the news has been, <laughs> the news has been interesting uh, all round with COVID, but um, on, on the stuff that Jack was talking about is, um, I mean, I guess we could talk about that for the rest of the show, but just a few comments. When I was um, heading into work this morning, uh, I was listening to ABC and they were, I guess, speaking about um, the other side of alcohol harms, um, Indigenous communities and what's happening with COVID. And, and one of the things that they were commenting on is, in some of these remote areas where they um, have some level of restriction. And uh, the way I understood that conversation is that it was supported by, uh, you know, most of the Indigenous community. And they would have places like social halls where there was like limited alcohol consumption. You know, in a lot of these um, areas, there are prohibitions on takeaway alcohol. Mm. But the, the problem that they've been experiencing is with, even more severe restrictions, smuggling has increased and the price has gone up. So they were talking about like $500 for a, a bottle of spirits. And it's, this so, is that that, um, that backward effect that prohibition often has, that it does uh, encourage black markets. It doesn't actually have the uh, desired result of making people, forcing people into a position where they're apparently looking after their health better. It, it just creates incentives for uh, people that want to make a lot of money very quickly to get into the market. Yeah, so I guess um, the bottom line of that was that uh, I, I think that um, the point they were trying to make is that uh, there wasn't, a good balance in some of these communities right now with um, trying to prevent the harms from um, uh, alcohol consumption and then the harms of the prohibition. Mm. And um, so the harms of the prohibition were creating their own significant problems. You know, if, if somebody's spending $500 on a single bottle of alcohol, that doesn't leave much for everything else. No, exactly. Um, and I, I actually worry a little bit uh, on a similar vein, uh, worry a little bit at the moment about the um, uh, fines that people are being uh, handed out. Uh, I was hearing a few stories of people being uh, handed out the fines for being outside of curfew because they were going to buy cigarettes late at night. Um, and for somebody that's uh, really that desperate for a cigarette that late at night, 
perhaps they uh, also have uh, other issues like that. Uh, first of all, their tobacco addiction is, is, is very strong, so it's not something that they're able to resist as easily. Um, and perhaps they also have uh, other uh, things going on in their life and um, are not earning a huge amount of money. So this, these massive $1,600 fines uh, on top of everything else, it just seems counterproductive. It seems like we're hurting the, those who are already hurt more given the backhand? Yeah, I, I think this is, uh, I mean, you know, we're not, this program isn't about discussing the, the COVID thing, but I guess that's the reality that we're all living through right now. I mean, I think in terms of what you're describing there, one thing that's been known for decades is that um, smoking rates are much higher in people with a diagnosed mental illness. Um, and we know that the, the current restrictions are, putting a lot of strain on people's um, personal resources to manage their own mental health. So, you know, if somebody's really not feeling great with their mental health and cigarettes are, you know, I guess their crutch for dealing with that, then, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't really see the benefit. Finding people no, no, planet. but I mean, I think that's a that's a, a, a general position that we've had. <laughs> um, I think fines are uh, uh, more often than not a very counterproductive uh, type of measure um, that affects those with the least most and those with the most least. Um, any yeah. other comments yeah, on I'm the news? They, they, they had the CEO from the Burnett Institute talking about that um, uh, a couple of weeks back on on uh, on on radio and. Um, yeah, you know, and I think we can broaden this out to considering the the use of fines across the spectrum, including for drug use. They're mm -hmm. they're not actually a, a particularly effective measure or, or um, tool for affecting behaviour change. Exactly. Um, you know, any other comments on the news? Um, oh yeah, I think like look the the cannabis stuff. Um, well, actually, let's let's park that for a moment. I, I think with the um, the cocaine seizure story, I mean, we've been doing this show for over five years now and every every single week there's a, a new story about some kind of drug bust. Seizure like Every single week, without fail, there's a, a story about um, a drug bust. And um, historically, for the most part, their impact on the illicit drug trade has been pretty minimal. Uh, availability still being high for people who want to access drugs and the, the price has usually not been significantly impacted by, you know, the, the mega seizures, the four tons of this biggest seizure ever. Uh, that may change a little bit under COVID. There, there have been, um, you know, some reports of uh, changes in behaviour from people that um, couldn't access a, a drug that they would usually use some um, interruptions to supply, changes of um, purity, availability. I mean, you know, we're still kind of figuring out all of what's happening in that space. Exactly. So it may be that it does impact um, availability more than usual. Uh, there's less people crossing borders. There's less opportunities for smuggling in an island nation like ours. Um, but I, I guess we'll wait and see. I'd be really curious if it does actually have any significant impact on the drug trade whatsoever. I mean... I doubt it. And if it does, I expect that'll be for a limited amount of time. We did see that um, cannabis use is up uh, during this uh, this lockdown and the, the global pandemic in, in general. But um, on cannabis use, maybe it's time for a rethink on how we approach cannabis use. 
Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, I think that's unsurprising. You know, the government's essentially telling you to stay home. And um, I mean, like you could argue that getting high and playing video games is doing your civic duty right now. <laughs> you know, like the main thing is don't go out, stay home, stay home. That's all the messages. Well, what do you do when you stay home? Um, there's a, a variety of things that people can do. But um, yeah, it seems like a lot of people are consuming cannabis and watching Netflix or playing video games and um I don't know that that's much of a problem. So I guess, uh, uh, and that sort of brings us to the uh, to the to the uh, inquiry into the use of cannabis in Victoria. You have one more week to make your submission. So for all the listeners out there, please do. Um, not every submission needs to be uh, an academic research nope. thing. There's there's going to be plenty of submissions that cover a lot of the international evidence and uh, things like this. But uh, another thing that's really helpful is your personal stories. Um, the terms of reference, um, actually, Nick, if you could change the image to the terms of reference. Bring it up. Bring, bring the terms of reference up. Oh, I can't actually see that on my screen. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read them out. out. So uh, the terms of reference for this, uh, which is before the Legislative Council, you can find it at parliament.vic.gov.au. Uh, A, prevent young people and children from accessing and using cannabis in Victoria. Uh, B, protect public health and public safety in relation to the use of cannabis in Victoria. C, implement health education campaigns and programs to ensure that children uh, and young people are aware of the dangers of drug use, in particular cannabis use. Uh, D, prevent criminal activity relating to the illegal cannabis trade in Victoria. Uh, and E, assess the health, mental health and social impacts of cannabis use uh, on people who use cannabis, their families and carers. Those are the terms of reference. That's what you have to reference if you are writing um, a submission. But um, you can be imaginative with how you uh, how, how you address those because I, I'm just thinking uh, preventing criminal activity relating to the illegal cannabis uh, trade in Victoria is a very good way to prevent that activity and that's to legalise uh, the cannabis trade in Victoria. No more illegal activity. <laughs> and, um, and your stories can help with that. I mean, I... I know of people that have been around this that um they never desired to or had any intention of associating or interacting with um uh any kind of violent criminals but um because of the illicit nature uh there's a significant proportion of the uh illegal cannabis trade that's essentially run by organized crime um and your stories can help to illuminate that for the committee members. So, again, the website is parliament.vic.gov.au. Uh, you need to head to the Legislative uh, Council, Legal and Social Issues, Inquiries, and the inquiry is called Inquiry into the Use of Cannabis in Victoria. Uh, I'll also post links on social media, and if you're watching along on YouTube, there's one in the comments uh, right now, and those need to be made by Monday the 31st of August, which is next week. Uh, so get them in, even if it's just a, couple, a paragraph, really, just a paragraph uh, about... Some, something about your, your your own use of cannabis and how it uh, really doesn't uh, hugely negatively or at all negatively affect on your life. That's what the uh, government needs to know. 
Um, couple of events coming up uh, before we uh, go to um, our uh, main segment for the day. Um, it is uh, International Overdose Awareness Day also on Monday the 31st of August. Uh, International Overdose Awareness Day um, seeks to raise awareness around uh, overdose uh, but also to um, raise awareness of the negative effects of things like stigma on people who use drugs and how that then compounds these problems and um, we, we don't get uh, solutions out of that. Uh, an event that is going on for Yarra Drug and Health Forum uh, is Compassion Not Judgment for International Overdose Awareness Day. It will be a live-streamed event on um, the Monday night, I think it is, at 7.30. Uh, yep, sat, uh, starting at 7.30pm, and you'll be able to find that one on the Yarra Drug and Health Forum's website, which is YDHF. .org.au. In uh, Psychedelia is the show. We are on 3CR and this is uh, us finalising, final, finishing up on our YouTube simulcast as well. So please switch over to 3CR 855 AM or streaming at 3cr.org.au uh, to listen to the rest of the show. It's also where you can go and subscribe to our podcast and find more from us. Thank you. This is In Psychedelia. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming an increasingly important actor in the military-industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. 3CR, here to stay. In Psychedelia on 3CR. 
855am3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. I'm going to be hearing now from Professor Margaret Hamilton, who uh, was the head of the independent review of the medically supervised injecting room. This comes from a stream uh, that was hosted by uh, the Yarra Drug and Health Forum and VADA, the Victorian Alcohol and Drugs Association. And you can find the full video, because you're not going to hear it all here, uh, at the Yarra Drug Health Forum website, ydhf.org.au, or by subscribing to VADA's YouTube. You'll be able to find it there. Margaret. I'm speaking today still really as the chair of that review and in a sense representing the consensus report that was written, um, which I both agree with and I am quite proud of. There was a lot of work went into this. So rather than retirement, this was like full-on, full-time effectively, though that was not necessarily what I was, uh, what was anticipated when the deal was originally struck. Um, so just to introduce the panel very briefly, I was there as the chair. Um, throughout the time of the panel's existence, I was accompanied uh, by colleagues, John Ryan, who was from the Pennington Institute um, that many of you will know. Uh, Dr. Alex Cockrum was engaged with us for many, many months, and she came with a mental health, psychiatry and health administration background. And she was whisked away to the Royal Commission on the Mental Health System here in uh, Victoria, so was unable to continue. She was replaced by Mr Ken Lay, who had been the previous police commissioner of Victoria. Uh, and I thought that was an excellent um, combination to have had Alex as a psychiatrist available to us and then to have Ken on law enforcement available to us. It was fortuitous and both of them made significant contributions. Ken, unfortunately, was whisked away to become commissioner for the bushfire recovery effort in Victoria early this calendar year, so in January. Uh, and in anticipation of that and knowing that that might well happen, uh, we had approached Dr Ruth Vine, um, who was appointed by the minister as the final member of the panel, who then saw through um, from January till we finished in, in late June, early July, um, again with a mental health psychiatry background, who had also been the chief psychiatrist for Victoria um, in the public service but had also been responsible for running, managing and overseeing mental health services um, in a significant region uh, here in Victoria. So in terms of the history and the context, we had quite a broad representation. My own history in the geography um, probably started before I started working in the, in the area, but I actually started 50 years ago this year at St Vincent's Hospital in the Department of Community Medicine, as it was then known, which incorporated the special clinic, which was the euphemistic title of the alcoholism clinic. I was there for seven or eight years, and during that time, um, I was part of the group that set up the Fitzroy Social Service Council and became very engaged with homelessness services, the Brotherhood of St Lawrence and their family project, the relocation projects of people who had been taken from 
what were regarded as the Fitzroy slums and called that, uh, and replaced with the then tower public housing blocks that became the Atherton Gardens. So I was kind of on the ground in Fitzroy in particular, but also Collingwood, um, Smith Street, and to some extent, um, Victoria Street, before it became the hub of the Vietnamese restaurants uh, and other businesses. So my very first research in this field was um, looking at the people who came to what was called casualty, which is now the ED department. And what is it that brings them there? Um, and why are we not intervening earlier and doing something about that? Um, that led to me becoming very engaged with people who had started in those years, 50 years ago, to use things other than alcohol. Uh, and so I was involved in the very early um, citing and responding to people who were using opiates, uh, subsequently hallucinogens, um, cannabis, uh, and various other things. And so I never chose to work in alcohol and drugs. I've never made that choice that this is what I want to do for the rest of my working life. But here I am trying to retire 50 years later. I returned to that area very fully when I was the um, founding director of Turning Point Alcohol and Drug Centre in Gertrude Street and ran a service that had both harm reduction, treatment, um, research, education and training and provision of support for people in the local geography and uh, worked very hard at the education, training and research foundations. I went from that after 10 years when I thought it's time for someone else to have a go at that to chair the Multiple and Complex Needs Initiative. I won't say more about that, but I think it's becoming increasingly important. And now my only ongoing um, role is as a community member of the Mental Health Tribunal, where I sit once a week for a day. So say something briefly about the process and uh, the approach of the review. Um, having met the other review panel members, I was very committed and very determined that we try to identify what evidence might be available to us and what, uh, who were the audiences for our report, all within the terms of reference which had been set and are included in our report. Um, we did identify and publish our review framework and how we intended to proceed. We commissioned two pieces of specific research, uh, once repeated, which was the community survey of local residents and businesses, and, the sec and that was repeated about one year later. That was our best effort to get a before and during, I don't think we could call it the after, um, look at how local residents and local businesses had experienced the injecting room. We also commissioned some work from the Burnett Institute uh, using their supermix study uh, cohort, which was a cohort of people who inject drugs that has been in place now in Victoria for many years. And we thought that would allow us an opportunity to have a look at what were those folk doing before the injecting room was opened 
and uh, then sometime later. And then there was a lot of other data that we accessed and spent a lot of time looking, analysing, getting expert advice on analysis and so on. We had a lot of meetings with service users and users of both the injecting room and the North Richmond Community Health Service and also staff of both of those um, services. We also met with a number of organisations and people that we thought were important in delivering services or trying to understand the needs of people who needed services in the geography. And we held a series of community consultations in about August uh, last year. Uh, we met with and I walked, talked, ate, had coffees, pondered and spent time about once a month. I just went for a wander um, in the zone, so to speak, along Victoria Street, uh, north and south of Victoria Street, um, down to Bridge Road and uh, Church Street, sometimes down to the river and then across to where Sam's office is um, a bit further up going towards Victoria Parade. So we met with a lot of organisations who are named particularly in the acknowledgements of our report. Our big effort was putting all of this together. Um, there is no simple or easy way to evaluate a service like this. So the last thing I'll say about that is that um, this was a report done on the basis of the data available to us at 18 months time. So, you know, we're getting closer to the end of this weird year that we're all in, but we had to draw a line in terms of collection of pretty much all the data by December last year to be able to try and bring it together. So a lot of the detail of that work, the analyses, the specific figures are in our report. So I won't spend any time on that, but that's what took up a lot of my time and a lot of effort in trying to ponder, understand, put together uh, these various sources of evidence. And there were some things that I thought we would find that we probably didn't and some things that I didn't expect that we did find. And I know you'll now say, well, what are they? Um, I can't pluck them off the top of my head, but that may emerge in our discussion. So I think that's probably all I've got to say about the review, the panel, and our approach to the actual task. Um, we met at least once a month, sometimes more frequently, but we had a lot of other meetings in the community and a lot of other data to get through. Thanks, Sam. Or Peter, actually, I think you're responsible for us. Yeah, thanks, Margaret. Uh, look, it's, um, it's uh, my pleasure now to ask uh, Sam Bionde to uh, make a few comments just about the uh, overall uh, AOD and harm reduction sector in Victoria and the lead up to the establishment of the injecting road. Thanks, Peter. Look, uh, you know, the, the, the story about uh, the establishment of the MSIR um, certainly fits within a a very uh, a very interesting context. The people may remember the the background of, uh, and I think Margaret touched on it um, in terms of her work at St Vincent's Hospital and, and uh, in the alcohol and drug sector and the emergency department there. 
the issues have been around the inner suburbs and across Victoria for many, many years. Uh, the thinking around what makes a difference uh, is often very clear in alcohol and drugs. The uh, approach which the community and government takes to start to address these issues is often is often uh, really convoluted, uh, illogical, and fails to actually think in a pragmatic and implement in a pragmatic way. What we were looking at over a number of years was an increasing amount of harm arising uh, from all sorts of, of alcohol and drug misuse. And in this case, uh, there was a substantive heroin use historically in the city of Yarra, um, as, as well as growing um, pockets uh, across Victoria. Um, none of this is a surprise to anyone. Uh, there was a lot of agitation uh, historically to try and see something established, uh, looking at European models of addressing the issue, uh, which started to uh, bubble up. In the, in the policy space. Um, much of this work um, was focused on uh, trying to reduce the amount of harm, trying to reduce the number of deaths, trying to address what the coroner had started to identify in terms of a, a ballooning number of deaths that were happening in particular uh, circumstances, in particular locations, uh, much of which still continues in, uh, in other parts of Victoria. Um, but it was particularly bad in the city of Yarra. Uh, the uh, coming together of thinking between harm reduction and treatment sectors with a continuing focus on what needed to be done eventually uh, started to get clarified and there was a, a whole community push for this to occur. Um, you know, VADA and many other organisations uh, were pushing for this. Local government was pushing, the Arab Drug and Health Forum was pushing. Uh, you know, there was academics, um, there was a real convergence on what needed to be done. The, the interesting thing of what, what happened out here in North Richmond is that we established a site right in the epicenter of where it was needed. This is quite important because you, you actually address the situation in situ. There are a range of other remaining issues, some of which have started to now come before is, what do we do about the rest of the state? What do we do about other communities? And I think we're starting to see some very interesting steps going forward in relation to this, with the, with the discussions of establishing a site, say in the city of Melbourne. And that'll be an interesting debate to see develop, of course. Um, the nature of what they established in, in Richmond was really quite important because there was a whole linkage with um, opening up the availability of allied uh, health support and, and access to treatment, better pathways and relationships to assist people. And what we've started to see is that not only were we assisting people in, in using facility where they could use drugs more safely, um, under supervision, but also accessing them into other allied health supports to address, say, hepatitis C, or dental work, or other health issues, which 
for so many years had been uh, ignored. And people, because of the stigma, because of the lack of access, because of continuing existing failures and primary health access weren't being seen. So I think the, the history and the context of where this MSIR has come from is really instructive uh, in terms of successes that can be gained in driving numbers of, of, of deaths down, uh, reducing the harm and starting to address the fundamental issues um, in, the, in the health uh, and even in the uh, amenity sense in particular communities. It's better to provide a service which is uh, seeking to, to keep people health, uh, healthy and safe rather than unfortunately picking up the pieces in the street and taking them to hospital or as so often happened uh, to the mall. So look, that's the end of my uh, little contribution here. I'll, I'll pass it on to Peter. Thanks, Sam. Uh, so I'd like to introduce uh, Sally Mitchell now. Sally Mitchell has been uh, an executive officer of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. She sits on the executive of the forum now, but as a local resident, Sally's going to talk about a little bit of the history of uh, these issues within the city of Yarra. Thanks, Sally. Thanks, Peter. Um, so I'll just start with a little bit of background for the Yarra Driving Health Forum. I'm assuming that some of the 150 people who are currently online may not know um, all of the background of Yarra Drug and Health Forum. So the forum started um, in the mid-1990s when there was a lot of um, visible drug dealing, so a street market in Smith Street in Collingwood. And uh, there was distress from local residents, from um, some of the traders in Smith Street about uh, the level of activity there. And the forum was formed to talk um, with those people between local services and, and the people who are experiencing the impact of that activity and try to come up with some resolutions and some way of, ways of addressing those issues. Um, in 2005, the Yarra Drug and Health Forum started to hold some community forums in the evening for community members to come along to and to talk about issues across the whole of Yarra that might have been impacting on their lives. Um, the, those forums were attended by residents, by traders, uh, workers from local services, um, the police, City of Yarra, Department of Health, as it was then, Health and Human Services now. And also from time to time, we had people who used drugs who would come to those forums as well. The purpose was to hold discussions, much as from the early days of the forum, to have an opportunity for people to discuss their local concerns, and to work together, thinking that um, people with different opinions and different experiences would be able to work together to come up with some solutions to the problems that they are experiencing. And it was a very uh, respectful way for people to sit and have discussions together. Each forum had two or three presenters who would also be presenting different perspectives on the issue that was being discussed. And, um, and from there, we then opened it up for discussions amongst the community members who were present. About this time in 2005, we held a forum at Richmond Town Hall. That was because there was much more drug activity on Victoria Street and there were concerns from people in North Richmond about the impact of that activity um, on their local community. 
So we met at uh, Richmond Town Hall as a local um, venue that we could use where people could easily access it. And we had a number of speakers there. We talked about the data of how much drug use and what sort of substances people were using in Richmond that we could get from statewide data. And we had uh, a presentation from the person who was the superintendent of police for the area at that time. And uh, he spoke um, very clearly about the city of Yarra's position in terms of drug activity and particularly street markets for the purchase of drugs. And talked about the location of Yarra in relation to public transport systems and the road network. And basically said to us, there's not going to be an, an easy fix to this and we need to be looking um, more broadly about how we, we can respond to this issue. We then opened the floor up to questions and discussion and, and we had some really interesting comments from community members who were saying, people are injecting drugs in public places in our community because they haven't got anywhere else to go to do that. And we need to provide somewhere for them to be. That night we had some people who injected drugs within the, the uh, participants and they um, spoke very clearly about their need for services, but also that if there was a place for them to go to use drugs, they would use that facility. So at the end of that meeting, it um, challenged us as Yarra Drug and Health Forum to think about how do we respond to that, this issue? We commissioned um, a number of pieces of research over a few years. Excuse me, I just need a mouthful of water. And the results of that research were that we realised that we needed to come up with some local solutions to a local problem. We couldn't just look at what else had worked in Australia or overseas. We needed to look at the particular circumstances for the city of Yarra and look at what we needed to be doing to respond to those particular circumstances and what we were hearing from people who were around in the city of Yarra. Um, we did a lot of work. We had a whole project that looked at working with um, and talking to people who were using drugs around that area of North Richmond. And what became very clear from that was that we needed to be making sure that we were responding to a really complex set of needs that they had. Um, that it wasn't just about somewhere to go to use drugs. There were other supports and things that they needed as well. And it was also clear from those different pieces of research that we really needed to be looking at community amenity and what the impact on local residents and other people in the community was of having a lot of drug activity in their community. So based on that research, we commenced advocating for a facility for people who use drugs in that area, feeling that there wasn't enough support for them at the moment and feeling that having some access to a service would also have an impact on the community amenity. So there was a long time between 2005 and 2018 when um, the MSO finally opened. And uh, we looked a lot at other things in that period of time in terms of other strategies to address drug activity, but we continued to advocate because we could see that there was a need in that community and that it was a response to a very localised issue. 
We were really pleased when we heard the announcement in 2017 that there was going to be a facility in North Richmond. And we were also really pleased to hear that um, that facility was going to have a very thorough evaluation and that evaluation would be looking at the benefits of the service for the people who are using it and the reduction in harm to them, but also that it was going to be looking at community amenity and the reduction in harm in, within the community as well. So we were really pleased to hear that Margaret was heading up um, that evaluation. And um, I guess now we have an opportunity for those people who haven't read her report um, to be um, hearing some of the detail of that. So thanks very much for everybody to come for coming and hearing um, from us today. Thank you. Sally, thanks very much for that. Um, that'll save me painting the picture of our effort to look at the history of that particular location. Um, I think that some of what has occurred in Victoria Street in Richmond has been associated with, and people have written about this, what had happened earlier in Fitzroy and Collingwood, and then the effort to clean up, if you like, um, the so-called drug scene on Smith Street did contribute, I think, to some displacement. Uh, and this is often the case. And if we look internationally, efforts to just crack down hard, have a lot of policing, have a lot of monitoring, uh, tends to mean that difficulties and the drug market and drug scene, if you like, pops up elsewhere. And so Victoria Street is in part a consequence of what occurred in the Fitzroy uh, Collingwood area a, a bit earlier on. Um, but I won't say much more about that. I think there's, there's certainly, when we looked at it, a lot of evidence for why that site was chosen. Um, I think that the particular selection of the specific site was not part of our terms of reference. Um, I think there were some fair enough and reasonable reasons, obviously the one about it being the most concentrated heroin marketplace and therefore likely injecting drug use uh, and people using it by injection were going to be in that zone. Um, the other reason I think that the site was chosen is that there was a service there that already had a very strong and positive uh, relationship with people who inject drugs. And that's perhaps one of the primary criteria, I would suggest, for thinking about where you site a service such as an injecting room. The North Richmond uh, Community Health Centre already had um, GPs, it had a lot of other health services, it had a needle and syringe program, one of the busiest uh, and strongest demand in, in the whole of the state. Uh, it was also close to public transport, um, could be re easily accessed. So a whole lot of reasons why that was quite a reasonable site. One of the things we tried to do in looking at the data, and I, I just want to spend just a, a moment or two on data because a lot of people will quote things from various sources about, well, what about this and what about that? I spent weeks, days, um, many, many minutes looking at specific data. Um, if, for example, we take the coroner's court data and the coroner's presentation to the parliamentary inquiry, it suggested there'd been 35 overdoses in 2015. 
just in that particular zone. Professor Margaret Hamilton speaking at the recent Yarra Drug and Health Forum online forum uh, with VADA, the Victorian Alcohol and Drugs Association. Uh, Find their channel on YouTube where you can watch the full talk. Uh, Thank you to Jack Ravel and Ash Blackwell uh, on the program this afternoon. Don't forget to subscribe at 3cr.org.au and find us on YouTube as well. Uh, We'll be back next week from 2pm and Queering the Air is up next. See you later. This is in Psychedelia. For more information, visit Encycadelia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Encycadelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. You've been listening to a 3CR community radio podcast of Psychedelia. Produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Find us on Facebook and Twitter.